everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. We have with us today a special guest, Kaylee Dayton. Uh, she's a nurse practitioner and host of the podcast Walking Home from the ICU. Welcome to the show, Kaylee. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk a little bit more about mobility in the ICU today. And uh, Brandon's got a case for us to walk through. This is, uh, you know, we talked about this with, in our episode with Dale Needham not too long ago. And I think one of the points we were making is that these concepts of, you know, keeping patients awake and mobile and functional and not delirious while they're critically ill is something most of us are theoretically on board with. But practically doing it is is a whole nother level. So we thought it was really worth spending some time just diving into how you actually make this happen. And I think no better person to help us out with it than Kaylee. Thank you. All right. So you are working in your ICU and um, a patient comes your way who is actually a 31-year-old female. She has a history of, of PTSD, alcohol abuse, uh, as well as benzodiazepine use, uh, marijuana use as well, malnutrition. She was actually admitted first to an outside hospital and intubated there for pneumonia, what they're calling ALPS, alcoholic leukopenic pneumococcal sepsis, uh, became quite ill. She you know, developed alcohol withdrawal, septic shock, um, frank ARDS, actually cavitary pneumonia, she was heavily sedated. She's been immobile for almost a week. The team was actually starting to discuss things like moving towards comfort care when she's transferred to your ICU. So when she arrives and you first get a look at her, she's still sedated. She's down to just one vasopressor now, but she's still on the ventilator with a peep of about 14 and 60% FiO2. With a patient like this, the story you just heard, granted, it's your first time getting to see her, but what are you thinking? What are kind of your priorities and what do you see as being the main things kind of on your agenda to take care of? So she kind of sounds like a little bit of a, a hot mess, right? There's a lot going on with her. And I think the immediate needs, the immediate priorities would be to keep her oxygenated and perfused. I think that's kind of critical care 101. So Rolling into our doors, we're going to make sure that she's oxygenating with her current ventilator settings and obviously uh, assess her hemodynamics with her current vasopressor settings. So once we kind of have that under control, it sounds like it is. She's adequately oxygenated with those settings and her vasopressors are down to one vasopressor. Then right at the moment she rolls into the doors, we also need to look at the long-term goals, the big picture. So some of my concerns for her are her um, physical functional status. So considering her history of alcohol abuse, she's malnourished, um, she's been immobilized for a week, and she's had this inflammatory process of septic shock going on, she's at high risk of terrible ICU-acquired weakness. And I think sometimes we look at the number as far as her being 31 years old, and just think she'll she'll jump right back to it, um, but she may not. Um, the strength that she loses by laying in bed, especially under these conditions, and starting out so malnourished and so weak, really put her at risk of um, losing essential respiratory muscles that she'll need to expand her stiff and injured lungs. Um, at this rate, it sounds like if she continues to be immobile. She is just headed straight towards a tracheostomy, um, which is kind of a touchy subject because in the wake and walk in ICU, hardly anyone comes out with a tracheostomy. Um, I think in large part because they don't atrophy to that extent. So ideally, if she had been admitted initially to the wake and walk in ICU, she never would have been deeply sedated and would have been walking right away. But at this point, we've already lost, I don't know how much muscle mass. Um, the brain's going to be very disconnected to the muscles, especially if she's been on something like propofol or versed. Um, so I see acquired weakness is one of our big concerns. Um, so we need to keep her obviously alive and taking care of for that shift, but we 
have to really be thinking of where is she headed in the next few days, the next few weeks, and where her lungs headed. If her lungs are that sick, she needs to be able to have a functional diaphragm and respiratory muscles to cope with it. Um, we also, in considering her history of alcohol withdrawal that she just went through, that she has sepsis, she's been in septic shock, we have to really consider her cognitive function. She is at huge risk of having delirium. And she probably is actively in delirium while sedated. A lot of our um, delirium studies only really measure delirium once you can do a CAM score, which you can't once they're deeply sedated. So I think the time under delirium for these ICU patients is much longer than we've adequately captured in our studies. So looking at her, I would be really concerned about what kind of injury is happening to her brain, because that's what delirium is. It's a brain injury, right? Or a manifestation of the injury happening to the brain. And we don't have, you know, we don't have a creatinine clearance to measure that, right? Um, But we need to know what's going on with her brain and consider that when it comes to sedation. And at 31 years old, we have to think about what would that do to her life? She's going to be in the ICU with us for a few weeks, but she has a whole life, hopefully, ahead of her. What would it mean to her to not be able to go back to work? Um, what would it mean to her not be able to take care of her daughter because she has post-ICU dementia? What would it mean to her to not be able to do simple math, read a clock, balance her finances? Things like that would make a huge impact on her life. And then um, along those same lines, we have to consider her psychological safety. If she has a history of PTSD, clearly something traumatic has happened in her past. And when people are delirious, they often relive that trauma that they have previously experienced in her life. And it's not just a bad dream. It's not like a nightmare. It's vivid. It's vivid reality to them. Um, And baseline PTSD is a huge risk factor for post-ICU PTSD. It's just they spend weeks going through the same trauma and then reliving new trauma that's just as real to them as if it was in real life. And so for me personally, when I see someone that's sedated, I, my heart kind of jumps up into my throat just because of what I've heard doing all these interviews with survivors on the podcast about what they've experienced. So if she's a sexual abuse survivor, if she's been domestic violence, I don't know what her PTSD is from, but whatever it was, she's probably reliving it. And that really changes for me personally, how I'm going to approach sedation. So we have to get her out of this comatose state and clear out her delirium for her functional status, her cognitive and psychological safety. I think that uh, I agree with everything you just said. And I think that some people have a hard time really um, prioritizing some of these downstream effects like her long-term physical or cognitive function. But even if that's how you look at it, which is you know probably not right, but even if that is your perspective, um, the overlap between the long-term outcomes and their short-term outcomes is is really a pretty broad one. So even looking at a patient like this, I mean, clearly she's hardly made much progress in what's getting into a, a little bit more of a subacute duration of her illness. And it's a, for a lot of the same reasons, probably. So, I mean, if you can't prioritize kind of making patients functional in the short term, then they also don't make, you know, short-term progress. Like they don't get off the ventilator. They don't get out of your ICU. And it's a lot of the same things. So even if you're not thinking about six months from now, it's a lot of the same things, I think. Well, absolutely. People always say, well, I can't think about avoiding PTSD when I'm just trying to keep them alive for the moment. And so I hear that a lot. I'm just trying to keep them alive. But the more sedation she receives, the more likely she is to die. Yeah, those are not different goals or the same goals. So if you really are focused on mortality, I mean, we should be thinking about a lot more than mortality. But if that's all you're thinking about, then that alone is reason to get her off sedation. Okay, so that being said, clearly a challenging situation. So, I mean, where do you start? What's your first step in a patient who's kind of already in this loop of sedation and delirium and complications? Yeah, this is, it's so tricky. Um, I think this is where the eight of F bundle can be kind of difficult to implement. Um, the normal process of care in the awake and walking ICU is obviously to give induction sedation for intubation, 
But then we let people wake up right after. And, you know, it's kind of a jolt to wake up intubated. But at first, but then you talk to them, you can, they still have their coping mechanisms. After a few minutes, you can say, hey, remember what we talked about 20 minutes ago? Here you are, here's the tube. And they understand and they're, you prevent a lot of delirium and it's so much easier to manage them. I think when we think about people being off sedation, we imagine these kind of scenarios with this patient, because when we wean back sedation, it's going to, it could get scary. Um, I feel like starting deep sedation is like biting off a grenade and then handing it down shift to shift. It's going to explode on someone. So in this case, the grenade was bitten off. The top was bitten off of the grenade in the outside hospital. And she shipped to this hospital. And now we have to wean back the sedation. Otherwise we have no idea what her neural status is. I remember when I learned, um, as a travel nurse, sedation vacations, because I started in the wake, awake and walk in ICU. So I didn't really know how to do sedation vacations. So I went to the East Coast, was in a hospital. They taught me how to do them. They said, you just turn down the propofol just enough to see all four flail. And then you crank it back up because clearly they can't handle the, the, the ventilator. And it just felt so wrong. I didn't really know what her neural status was doing. So I think in approaching this patient, it's really important to wean back the sedation. But it has to be gradually weaned if you just suddenly if she's been on propofol or reset or something for a week shutting it off is going to cause a big disruption so we have to gently wean it back but also giving up time to see um how deep her delirium is all right so you you have good intentions and you come in and say it's got to be done so you do start to taper off the sedative drip she's on and she becomes very agitated, uh, as many of you expected. But she's very combative. She has to be uh, restrained. She's thrashing around, almost pulls out her line, almost falls out of bed, biting at her tube. She actually bites all the way through her ET tube, and it has to be exchanged. You are, you are in the, that moment right now. <laughs> And where do you where do you go with that? You just keep forging ahead with what you're doing. Uh. I, that that's a really re- unique situation. I mean, I think I've seen maybe two patients ever bite through their tube and they wake and walk in ICU. And I think that comes back to delirium rates being lower because you, you don't cause delirium. Um, so obviously, safety is a huge priority. You you can't have someone biting through their tube and trying to self-extubate all the time. And I think if you're doing a tube exchange, you're going to have to deeply sedate them, right? Just redo kind of the induction sedation. Um, but that kind of gives us a minute to to rethink everything. Um, we have to kind of step back and, and look at what's really going on. So obviously she's delirious. What's causing the delirium? Um, we have to look at she is an alcoholic. She's gone through alcohol withdrawal. We had to kind of map out the timing. Is she actively in alcohol withdrawal? Um, or is she kind of out of that window? And so is this just from the sepsis? Um, or is it mixed with the sedation that she's had for a week? And I think that's an important factor too, because I think we think of things like propofol as short acting. But if someone's had it for a week, they have gone a week without real sleep. Um, depending on the body habitus, which I'm sure isn't her problem, but you know, in our obese patients, that propofol settles in the adipose tissue, and that's going to take at least hours to days to really metabolize out. So even if we turn off sedation or propofol, it's still going to be lingering. So we need to give it time. So is it just a time thing that we need to allow that sedation to wear out? Um, you said she was uh, had a history of benzodiazepine use. So what was she getting at the outside hospital? Was she on benzodiazepines out there? And now is she in acute withdrawal? Um, what was she taking at home? How much was she taking? So we, we need to look at all these factors and see what's reversible. What just needs some time to wear out? Um, what can we do? And, and we have to understand, I mean, the best treatment for delirium is mobility. That is the best way to treat the agitation, um, clear out the brain, all the things and, and allow them to get real sleep. So to keep her safe in that moment, obviously we're going to need some sort of sedation, but our goals need to be in line with the short term and the long term. So we had to consider her safety 
for that moment. Um, how do we keep her tube secure without increasing her chances of dying with sedation? How do, again, all the psychological and cognitive safety, how do we keep her safe from muscular atrophy? So I think we have to have a broader per, uh, perspective of safety in those discussions. Keep the tube in, but keep her progressing and on the path to surviving. So for her, um, hopefully she's already already has a feeding tube. If not, we definitely need to, to get one down. Um, I would give her benzodiazepines, um, like a low-dose clonopin or something to make sure that we're covering her benzodiazepine dependence to make sure that she's not withdrawing. Um, and then some sort of light sedation that will help her get to a rest of zero and keep her safe so that we can mobilize her to start treating the underlying causes of delirium. Um, so I would start some Presidex. So I would give clonopin, Presidex, maybe some fentanyl on top of it, especially considering her ventilator settings to make sure that she's um, not having air hunger or any kind of dyssynchrony. Um, but again, for the rascal of zero, any deeper than that, she's not going to be able to walk or get up or mobilize. And that's going to be the key to clearing out the delirium and having a much calmer, more cooperative patient. So you're using benzodiazepines specifically because of her history of alcohol withdrawal. Would you use that in someone who didn't have that history? Um, yeah, I, I think, um, a, fairly common practice. It's amazing how many patients don't need anything for as far as anxiety or agitation um, when they're not started on sedation um, because you don't cause the agitation that comes with delirium. And so they really can cope with it for the most part, but it's not comfortable to be on the ventilator. Um, people have baseline anxiety that may, they may not have treated prior to the ICU and then they're in the ICU and it's just raging. So I think it's really appro appropriate to do like a low-dose clonopin. So we'll do 0.25 milligrams BID, TID, and increase it depending on their, their needs, their threshold. But the great thing about not automatically starting sedation, besides preventing delir delirium, is that patients can tell us what they're feeling and what they need. And you can treat that as far as pain and anxiety without making them comatose. So clonopin is one of our go-tos as far as something low-dose. Um, and again... You never want to over-sedate them. You never want them more or less than a RAS of zero. So we usually start low, see how they're doing, see what they need, and they can tell us, and we can work with them to find a good balance for them. Again, that's not the standard, but it's definitely a tool that we can use uh, when it's needed, and sometimes it is, and that's fine. That's interesting because normally I would say, you know, if you're trying to avoid things like delirium, you'd really try to avoid benzodiazepines, which you know, probably are more deliriogenic than a lot of sedatives. But it sounds like you're really not using it for sedation. I mean, your goal is not for the patient to be sedated. You're using it as a, as a true anxiolytic. I mean, if you're the patient is sleepy afterwards, I mean, maybe you gave them too much. You have a patient who actually sounds like maybe tells you they're anxious and you treat their anxiety the same as you met a patient in like the outpatient setting almost. Absolutely. And, and we're not, this isn't our first go-to. This is after we have the family at the bedside. We've answered their questions. They're walking at least three times a day. They're sitting up in the chair. They're, um, we're using all these non-pharmacological options, which are really effective. And I think that's why using clonopin is so rare. Sure. Um, because the other approaches really do help. People say, I'm anxious. Please let me walk. It helps so much to leave the room, to get out of the bed, to not be stuck in the same position. To, But I think especially to know what's going on. I mean, you think about why someone's agitated, why they come out swinging. It makes so much more sense when you've heard survivors talk about how they really thought that they were being sexually abused. They thought their kids were kidnapped. Me personally, I have three kids. If I think that they are kidnapped, the second I can move my limbs, there's no way you're keeping me in the bed. If that's my vivid reality, I'm out of there. Right. So when we prevent that whole scenario, it's a totally different ballgame. And yet we have tools to help the real anxiety that they might feel. So if, I mean, if you do need sedation per se, you're favoring dexmedetomidine and then really trying to prioritize mobility. How, um, yeah. To what extent can they still be confused or delirious and you would feel comfortable mobilizing them? 
I mean, if if they're in that state where they're still actively fighting you, I imagine that you're not quite there yet. But I also assume you're not waiting until they're, you know, a thousand percent oriented and, you know, have perfect recall of all events and things like that. Yeah. What we see is that um, delirium starts improving with activity. So delirium can really impact your ability to coordinate your body, to put one foot in front of the other, right? And so that's that can be really tricky. So if someone is so delirious, they can't even talk to their hands, we'll just sit them outside of the bed and dangle them for 15 minutes. Um, sometimes it's dangle. Sometimes they're actually engaging their core and setting themselves up. Sometimes it starts out as a dangle and then it turns into them sitting. It's amazing to watch the lights come on while they're doing that activity. Um, something about the brain having to talk to the body and then they start realizing where they are. They're not in the grocery store. They're in the store and they're in the hospital. Um, they start following commands and their agitation improves. And someone like her that's been immobilized for a week, she's going to be really weak. So even at 31, sitting up at the side of the bed might be a lot of exertion for her, holding her own head up and using her own abdominal muscles to sit might wear her out. But that's great. That's what we want, right? We want them to be worn out, calm down and get real sleep because clearly sedation is not sleep. So if we can get a real nap and then keep mobilizing during the day and then get real sleep at night, that's going to be a huge benefit to delirium. So we're going to see what they're doing each step of the way. We're not just going to throw her out of bed and say, hit the road, start walking. We're going to go step by step. So you'd rather do something, even if it's limited, than than nothing. Right. Like, I mean, let's say it's in the morning. Let's sit on the side of the bed in the morning. Um, if that's all she can do, then that's all we're going to do. But in the afternoon, at around 1 o'clock, we're going to do that and then sit, stand up and see how she does standing. And if she does that well, we'll try a few steps. And then by the evening, we're going to try to walk even further. So it's, yeah, it's definitely a process. And just because they couldn't do it in the morning doesn't mean that they can't do it in the evening. If she is still at a place where you have some concern, she could try to uh, accidentally extubate herself. Um, does that impact what you would do with her? Because, of course, in a you know a setting where they're not as used to this, they might say, well, I, I, I need to have them in bed restrained, or she might grab this tube. If you're moving around or... Even if you're something like sitting in a chair, um, it gets a little more difficult to, you know, monitor and kind of ensure that's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, I think at that point, we're not going to have her in a chair independently, right? If she's not reliable. Um, but if she's on Presidex and she comes down to a RAS of zero, maybe one, um, considering her history of being malnourished, she's, she's weaker, um, that's not really the kind of patient that going to overpower us. So with restraints on, I'm just trying to think what we innately do. I think we kind of just hold the restraints like around our own hands while we hold her hands so that she can't just reach quick for her tube. So while she's sitting on the side of the bed, we can put our hands inside the bed to help support her whole sitting. Um, but it also kind of restrains her. And as we, you can see the patient calming down, becoming more cooperative, and then it's worth trying to stand and then walk. And so it's, it's a constant assessment of where they're at. And, it, and it, I know it sounds really dangerous or tenuous, but someone that's delirious, weak, and not raging, agitated, right? By that point, she's on Presidex. Um, it, it's really not that dangerous. Now, if someone is like, I remember this, this bricklayer was an alcohol withdrawal and he was extremely strong and extremely agitated, and it took a lot of sedation to get him down. Um, that does change it. That does make it hard. But I think um, most patients can be really do calm down as they get up and they're mobilized. Now, the other side of this is the respiratory side. Patient like this, who perhaps is still on fifteen a peep and seventy percent FiO two. Um, how do you address, you know, keeping her lungs supported and keeping her oxygenating and ventilating while she exerts herself? Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely part of the assessment. I think we get really scared of ventilator settings. I mean, it's clearly a sign of worsening pulmonary status. Um, yet there's no research that shows that 
um, it's harmful to mobilize patients on the ventilator or even at higher settings. I've had this one article thrown at my face, but it really it was just a, it wasn't even a study. It was a group of intensivists and physical therapists that had a powwow and came to a consensus on what they were comfortable with. But there's nothing showing adverse out, outcomes from mobilizing people, even on higher settings. Um, yet there's all sorts of research showing the adverse outcomes of immobility. So um, oxygenation is always the priority. Um, so if she, as we're sitting up, if she oxygenates with movement on those settings, great. And what we do prior to um, activity is we pre-oxygenate. So if someone's on a nasal cannula of four liters, we don't even flinch at turning it up to six liters or putting them on an rebreather to walk. So why can't we do the same with a ventilator? So if she's at 70%, crank her up to 100%, pre-oxygenate, keep it at 100%. Most of the ventilators actually require 100% in order to be able to disconnect off the wall. I'm not sure why, but so they're going to be on 100% anyways. So pre-oxygenate and then assess as you go. Keep them on the monitor. Um, sit up, see how they do, stand up, move. And most people, even on those kind of settings, still oxygenate. Um, with movement and sometimes better. I've seen someone oxygenate better walking than prone. But of course, you're not going to know that until you try. So the only way to really customize and personalize and even optimize patients' care and outcomes is to continually assess and strive to get them to do more. Do you ever find that you need to change their vent mode? I don't think too often. That's definitely a question for a respiratory therapist. I think I take for granted how, um, you know, just like nursing, it, it's a skill set to be able to talk to patients that are on the ventilator and calm them down using non-pharmacological approaches. But also our respiratory therapists are probably really skilled at adjusting the ventilator settings. And I'm about to do an episode with, about that with one of our pulmonologists because um, I, it's so infrequent that it's a problem that I, I as a nurse practitioner don't have to deal with it very often. So. Yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of the synchrony can come from delirium, from being agitated, um, you know, the erratic breathing and everything. But um, for the most part, they really jive with the ventilator, whether that's preventing delirium or the specific customized settings that the um, respiratory therapist put them on. Okay. So you are able to get her sedation down to a reasonable amount. She's able to actually stand and she takes a, a little turn around the room. Uh, really, it doesn't sound like much, but for her, it's a lot. Um, and then kind of hobbles back to bed and collapses. And she, I mean, she is, she is worn out and she pretty much passes out on you. Um, where do you go f from there? I mean, she done, done for the day? Um, well, it depends on what time of the day it is, but if it's during the day, no. <laughs> and once she passes out, once she's actually asleep, then we're going to keep trying to sneak that Presidex off. So maybe she needed it during that acute phase of agitation, but what does she need now? We need to constantly try to be pulling it back. And so if she's calm and, and asleep, then her RAS is less than zero, then let's start weaning it back because it's not real sleep if it's, if it's because she's sedated. Uh, so we're using um, fatigue-induced uh, sedation. Yes. Is there any better in the ICU? Yeah, sound, sounds very uh, all-natural. Yes, and it's actually much more effective. Um, and it's real restorative sleep um, versus sedation, which is not remotely sleep. Um, so if we can wean back sedation while she's asleep um, and then see how she does when she wakes up, when she's done napping... Um, we're getting closer to being off a of sedation. But if she still needs some precedents when she wakes up, that's fine as long as we keep it harassed to zero and she can still cooperate. Um, but the goal is to have her off. Now, are you going to not allow her to sleep for too long on the thinking that if she sleeps during the day too much, she's going to be awake at night? Yes, that's a big part of um, facilitating real sleep, right? Um Trying to think for her, I mean, she probably is extremely worn out, hasn't had real sleep. But let's say we're mobile, she falls asleep at one o'clock in the afternoon because we just did an activity session. Um, I would, we don't let people sleep past three. So if she's um, still asleep at three, then we're gonna turn the light. Well, the lights are always on. So we're gonna just 
get her up. And that's probably about time for another mobility session anyways. So she's going to be up and moving again. And then we do the final mobility session on the night shift around like eight or nine o'clock so that we get a head start on real sleep again. So you'll generally try to mobilize people three times a day? Yep. So in the Wicked Walking ICU, turn Q2 isn't, is rarely a thing. It's rarely necessary. What's equally standardized and ingrained is walk TAD. All right. So um, using this approach, the patient actually seems to improve over the next few days, at least from the perspective of her sepsis and her mental status. Um, her sedation weans. She's generally appropriate and for the most part is you know, spending more and more hours of the day not delirious. However, her lungs actually continue to get worse. Um, she's up to 18 a peep now and, and 90% FiO2. There's some signs of additional necrosis and cavitation on her lung imaging. Um, and I wonder where this is going to take her and affect your plans. And, and in particular, what I'm wondering is a patient like this, many times we'd be thinking, do we go in the direction of of proning them, which I, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like is going to really throw a wrench in your in your schemes of keeping her awake and, and mobile because she's going to be spending most of the day laying on her belly. Maybe you can try to avoid you know, sedating or, or paralyzing her in that setting, but she's certainly not going to be moving, right? So I feel like you have to go kind of one way or the other with this. You know, not necessarily. So um, obviously proning is beneficial with COVID patients, and it's worth trying with her to see if that helps reduce her um, her settings. I mean, being on a peep of 18, we all get nervous, right? So if we can decrease her settings while she's proned, it's definitely worth trying. That does not mean that she has to be paralyzed or even deeply sedated. Um, so if someone is really trustworthy, really with it, really coherent, we've had lots of COVID patients be able to be lightly or even not sedated while being prone. Patients can be on their cell phones. They can be writing on the board. They're still able to cam score on their stomachs. So then you spare the brain, but you still give the benefit to the lungs. Um, with COVID patients right now, a lot of them, if they if they benefit from prone, which is not everyone, we assess that by taking a, a blood gas an hour before or right before proning and then an hour after. So if the PF ratio improves and we're going to keep proning them, but we only do that for 16 hours. And then those eight hours off, they're going to be up and moving again. So that's how we kind of try to balance out both. We keep try to preserve their muscles, but also... Um, find the best benefit for their oxygenation um, and try to keep their ventilator settings down. Um, so with this patient, I would probably do the same thing. See if she would oxygenate better being prone and if the ventilator settings can improve. So I would do that with um, assessing the PF ratio uh, before and after proning. So even if you did prone her, you would use it as more of just a treatment like we'd use anything else and not a not a lifestyle, <laughs> meaning she doesn't need to, you know, be spending whatever, 16 hours a day prone and, and, you know, completely unconscious. And then even when she is supine, she's still essentially in the same state, just face up. I mean, she could still be awake and granted not walking around, but then when she turns back over, she can still be doing most of the same things. Right. Yep. She can get up, she can take her three walks and then she can, yep, spend the night on her stomach. Um, but there's no reason to sacrifice her brain for her lungs um, unless we get to the point of absolute dyssynchrony or she can't oxygenate with movement and then paralytics are actually essential. But at this point, she's still oxygenating sitting there. She's still oxygenating, hopefully oxygenating while she's able to move. Um, so why would we sacrifice the rest of it if we're not to that point? But it's worth seeing if her ventilator settings can come down and she can take a break from such a high peep while prone. All right. Um, so you do end up proning her for a period of time each day, but you're able to keep her awake. Um, she, you know, has some nice tummy time, but she flips back over and she continues to mobilize with you guys. Um, and then she actually gradually improves her respiratory status kind of plateaus and then starts to improve over time. And, um, she remains, you know, not too agitated, still a, perhaps a little delirious here and there, but, you know, easily controlled. Um, and, you know, a few more weeks pass. 
Uh, one issue you've been dealing with is that what to do with her at night. And uh, she's been spending a lot of time on spontaneous modes on the ventilators, such as CPAP or pressure support. Um, but she hasn't been able to do this all night long. She does get fatigued and becomes tachypnic. Um, do you, quote, rest people when they start to look like that? Or do you have some other strategy for kind of, you know, crossing this line of keeping them exercising, but, you know, not too much so? Um, we want her to get real sleep at night and to be able to not be so fatigued that she can't be on CPAP during the day. So yeah, it's a fine line, but we definitely do night rests. So if we'll keep her on CPAP as long as she can tolerate, and then that's what assist control is there to kick in when she um, can't keep up with it. And that gives us a lot of information as far as if she was able to do six hours on CPAP during the day, but needed to rest after that. And then go back on CPAP, we closely monitor that because that tells us a lot about her respiratory status and her functional status. Um, and that motivates us more to keep her moving, keep her walking, to try to keep those muscles strong and increase their strength. Um, but we're not going to make someone sit there and huff and puff all night and not get sleep and then get fatigued and never be able to go back on CPAP. Now, in most settings, a patient like this, certainly once they get, you know, several weeks into this course, they would end up with a, a tracheostomy. And I know you said that, you know, with good care, it's actually pretty unusual for you to have to give people trachs, but I imagine it certainly still happens. I would think that with a lot of what you're doing here, at least in traditional thinking, it actually could be facilitated with a trach. In other words, we would say, well, she's going to be a little easier to mobilize. She may not require as much sedation um, and so on with a trach instead of a, an ET tube. What's your way of thinking about this? Do you feel like trachs, you know, if they are needed, are useful tools? I mean, would you do them sooner if the patient is going to be with you no matter what, for instance, for their lungs? Um, or, you know, if you're forced to do it, then you go there, but not before. I think a lot of tracheostomies, especially in these kind of settings, um, as far as medical surgical ICUs, are from prolonged time in the ventilator, um, which your odds of having that are drastically increased with sedation. In her case, um, she has this these necrotic lungs. Um, you know, there might be talk of ECMO or um, thoracic surgery and things like that. Um, it's pretty clear that she's not going to bounce back from this, that this is a very different situation than any other pneumonia um, or ARDS. So... Um, if we think that she's going to have to have some sort of support for the next couple of weeks, um, then I think a tracheostomy is absolutely appropriate. It's really not something that we jump to because even after three, four weeks on a ventilator, most people can extubate and they never really stop walking and their diaphragm still is functional. They still have the respiratory muscles and they go straight home. I mean, 98% of the survivors at the wake and walking at ICU go straight home. But if her ventilator settings are down, a lot of the cute stuff is, is improved, but she's still needing some support at some point during the day or night. Um, yeah, I think a tracheostomy is probably her her best and most comfortable option. So for you, uh, the, a trach really, its sole role almost is for a patient like this who really has a prolonged respiratory disease and not for what I think a lot of us are using trachs for, which is patients who have prolonged ventilator courses largely due to sedation and delirium, if we're really being honest. Yeah, no, I think that is the absolute truth. Um, and I think there's this myth that um, it's safer to mobilize someone with a tracheostomy, um, which I, I'd like to see the research that um, that's based off of, because I, from my experience and my what I've studied um, in the research, um, it's not really true. It's perfectly safe to mobilize someone on uh, that's intertricularly intubated. And, but if I'm in your ICU and I have ARDS and a tracheostomy, the only way that you're going to feel comfortable or even consider weaning off sedation and getting me up, then fine, cut me. <laughs> but I don't really think that's necessary. And I, and I've seen it's, it's really not. Um, and tracheostomies are not benign. Um, there's like a 25% um, occurrence of having subglottic stenosis and there's like 13.9% of tracheal stenosis after tracheostomies. So if we 
can avoid that, which I really think we can by keeping people strong and getting them off the ventilators sooner, then I think that's worth implementing. She's an exception. And I've seen, I mean, honestly, in my few, my years of being in the wake and walk and ICU, I think I've seen maybe seven tracheostomies in very unique cases, like in stage interstitial lung disease that didn't want to go into comfort care or uh, muscular dystrophy. I mean, very special exceptions and not because of a normal ARDS. And I don't think any COVID patient, one COVID patient in this ICU has had a tracheostomy. And that was the end stage ILD patient. I think that's a, a very unique experience. Um, okay, great. So you, you do really, all things considered, a great job keeping her pretty functional. And she does get trached. Um, but she, you know, she essentially walks herself out of the ICU when the time comes for her to be discharged. And she goes to, to rehab, but really just planned for a short-term course, same as a much less ill patient might have. Um, and she's largely breathing on her own by that point. Your job is mostly done, but she is going to continue to have, you know, sequela of this critical illness. Is there anything you can do to try to optimize her, you know, downstream and, and outpatient care, um, providing continuity and trying to kind of mitigate some of these longer term consequences of what happened here? I hope so. <laughs> we don't have a lot of research or a lot of evidence on, on certain things. Um, I think that post-ICU clinics are... Um, becoming more common, clearly she's going to need pulmonology follow-up. I mean, that is our that is innate, right, for us to schedule that before she leaves our ICU. We're going to make sure she has support for the obvious damage that's been done to her lungs. And I think perhaps equally important is the damage that's been done to her brain. Considering her time with delirium and her baseline PTSD that she may not have been supported in prior. I mean, that's probably why she had alcoholism and benzodiazepine dependence. So she already had this psychiatric mental health crisis going on prior to this event. And now she's had delirium. So she's going to need support to be able to continue to avoid substance abuse. She's already withdrawn from alcohol, but unless we help her treat the underlying cause of it, she's at high risk to go straight back to what she was doing before. And then She's going to need support through just the trauma of critical illness, but especially her delirium that she suffered. Um, I think neuropsych would probably be her best option for follow-up, considering her high risk of cognitive deficits on top of the psychological injury that she's probably suffered. Um, even though we tried our best once she got to us to clear out her delirium, nonetheless, she had delirium and she had sepsis. And those are huge risk factors for having post-ICU dementia. Um, so she needs to know that that's a risk factor. Her family needs to know that she'll probably have um, worsened PTSD and these cognitive deficits. And again, we need to provide those resources for her to be able to have therapies um, available for her. All right. Well, she goes off on her way and you provide what you can for, for follow-up. And, you know, I... What we didn't share earlier, but this is probably the time to drop the other shoe, is that th this was actually a, a real patient. Isn't that right? Yep. She's, um, I, as I was taking care of her, I'm like, oh my goodness. I, I was amazed by what the team was doing. And I was starting to get really involved in a lot of my discussions with this podcast. And I thought this is like the picturesque patient as far as the perfect storm for horrific delirium and just how determined this team was to provide her a quality of life after her ICU stay. Granted, I think I think her survival alone was because of the care that she received. I think she really would have died in, in another facility. Yeah, well, like you said, I mean, at, at the start of, of your care, I mean, people were starting to wonder if she was going to get better at all. And I mean, I think it's easy to talk about some of these concepts in much easier patients. But like you said, these are the ones where you really – you really prove if it's possible. I mean, if you can take a patient like this and, and kind of pull them back from this hole they're in of, of medicalization and, and make them functional enough that not only are they able to get out of the ICU, but they're able to get out in you know pretty good functional status, I think it really kind of proves your, your approach. And, and these situations really are rare when patients come to us right away. I think most of the delirium that we deal with is when um, we receive referrals from other hospitals and they've already been sedated. And then 
we have to unleash the beast and wean back the sedation and hardly anyone bites through their tube. That's really rare. But there is that initial rodeo that is so difficult. And I think when our staff sees that, they're just reminded us to why we don't start sedation because no one wants to deal with that. It's exhausting. It's stressful. It's dangerous. That's when you get those events. We went over two years without self-extubations because patients were, for the most part, with it. And the staff is used to having patients express what they want and tell us, uh, make their own decisions and tell us what they need. Um, And so it's frustrating to have patients be this difficult to take care of. And especially with these tenuous ventilator settings, it's, it's scary. And, um, but no one was demanding to knock her out. I remember um, Shauna was the nurse taking care of her and she's been there for 30 years and she is one of my mentors. Um, and she was her nurse during that initial few days of horrific delirium. And she just stuck it out with her. And I was just really touched by how much she cared for this patient. And she saw the rest of her life ahead of her and was determined to just stick it out with her. And there was a lot of discussion um, about sending her to another facility for ECMO. But at this facility, they, in the respiratory unit, they don't mobilize their patients. And this, (laughs) this girl was so deconditioned. I mean, she was, I don't know, I want to say almost 80 pounds and just frail and weak and um, could barely hold her own head up. And Shauna, the nurse, just threw her hands on the desk and said, they are not taking her to that facility until she's absolutely destined for ECMO. We are going to keep her strong until then. If not, what do they have to work with? And it's true. ECMO outcomes are drastically impacted by how patients are managed on the ventilator prior to ECMO. And so that day was the first day they got her up. Um, I think it was probably the same day she was admitted. They put a gate belt around her and almost lifted her off the ground. I don't even know how much of her feet were actually touching the ground initially. But this patient, and I'm going to have her on the podcast here in this next week, she told me that she woke up walking. She was in horrific delirium. Again, she actually was reliving her trauma of the things that had happened to her in the past. But when she was walking, the actual environment, the hallways of the hospital started to come to her. And then she saw her family in front of her pushing her IV pole. And she started to really understand what's going on. We brought in her dog, um, who has always been her big safety and comfort. And um, yeah, her family was there. And she started writing on the whiteboard as she was taking her walks. When she stopped to take a break, sit in the white wheelchair, she'd start writing. And so she did not have to be on Presidex for very long. I want to say just a few days. And then she she was fine. She'd sit in the chair. She'd be unrestrained. She's one of the first people I told I was pregnant. She was just sweet and such a pleasure to take care of after that, once she was able to be herself. That's awesome. And, you know, I think when you're when you're in a unit that's not doing so much of this and maybe you're trying to, you know, make some culture change, one of the perceptions is always that it seems like a lot more work to treat patients like this. And there, I mean, there can be truth to that. I don't want to totally minimize it. But I think if you have this patient who you're trying to, because it eventually has to happen. You're trying to wean their sedation and they're going nuts on you. And I feel like at that moment, you may not feel like it's that much less work. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) whereas if they're, you know, just normal and functional and not sedated and they can work with you and be human beings, like that doesn't sound like that much work. I mean, normal people are, are not too hard to take care of. I mean, you may have to, you know, help them walk or something, but you know, it's, it's kind of a give and take. And we're so afraid of self-extubations or unplanned extubations. Um, And I think that is wholly understandable when you've never seen a patient be free of delirium on the ventilator. But once you have, you learn that when you're in your right mind, you're not going to pull out your lifeline. And so patients are really protective of their tube. They'll write on the board and say, please be careful of my tube. Um, I had a COVID patient. I walked by the room and the vents was alarming. And I saw her hands on the tube and, you know, you panic. We run in there and she said, um, we said, don't pull it out. And she was shaking her head like, are you joking me? And she wrote on the board, she said, I coughed and the tube came disconnected and I was holding it like I was holding the two tubes together. And so they really are protective and it's safer to have them free of delirium. And and it's I just think it's so much more fulfilling to really know the person that you're taking care of. And um, to fight for their quality of life uh, rather than just a flaccid body in the bed. And like you said, 
it's inevitable. You have to take off the sedation at some point. I think what I'm hearing from LTACs is that a lot of ICUs aren't taking off sedation until right before they leave LTAC. But it's probably easier at that point and to a degree because they're too weak to even lift a finger. So there's no fight anymore. And they're trached. So not my patient, not my problem. And they can deal with it. But I think that comes from a lot of um, ignorance as far as what patients face leaving after they're trached and paid and a f- an adult newborn, essentially. Yeah. And then, you know, two, three years to get them back to any kind of independence. And never to their baseline again. Yeah. Uh, Brian, what do you think? Any thoughts on this? Yeah. So uh, this has been a great talk. Um, so I worked for a number of years when I was a bedside nurse in a CTICU where we routinely walked uh, patients on the ventilator and patients on ECMO. Um, and I came into that environment from a place where that sounded crazy. And I remember um, when I was at my old unit and I was getting ready to start to move to this new hospital, people kept saying, you know, I hear they walk people on a ventilator over there and they even walk people on ECMO. Aren't you afraid? And I just remember thinking like, yeah, maybe I am. I don't really know. But when I got there, I was surrounded by all these nurses who were like, no, we do this all the time. This is the deal. This is just what we do. It wasn't a big deal. Um, and I think that was the key was seeing that this is the normal thing we do. And, you know, I noticed it was to the point where when new nurses would come in and they would have that, um, kind of afraid of this because patients on the ventilator should be sedated. And once they saw the difference it made, you know, you didn't have to go around and say, all right, it's time to get your patient up and walk. Like the, the staff, they were all pushing for it, right. To, you know, when we got to get, I'm gathering people together to help me walk this guy. And it would not be unusual at all to walk a guy on a VV ECMO with the ventilator and, you know, inhaled epoprostenol and pressors and a swan. And there'd be 10 people walking this guy around the unit and we just did it like it was no big deal. But I think that's the key is seeing the difference. It makes like you were saying, uh, this nurse, you know, was not going to let this patient leave to go someplace. She was not going to get this care because she understood the difference that it made. And I think that's where you overcome the whole, it's not safe or it's a lot of extra work or whatever the barriers are. Yeah. You make such a strong point of how, cultural it is deeply cultural and so we've had the same experience you know with covid travel nurses coming in and um i remember one travel nurse i mean she's on on the podcast i did an episode with her because she was very colorful and she was like what the that patient's not sedated and we're like uh yeah she's like you didn't tell me i didn't you didn't tell me an orientation that patients aren't sedated and then she became a total convert but at first it was really shocking and she said I mean, not that the patient was thrashing or uncomfortable or anything was going on. It just surprised me to see the patient sitting up, suctioning their own mouth. It was just a shock factor. Um, and I and I think that's just a lot of uh, misinformation out there that this is for patient safety or comfort. Um, this is more humane, all these things. Just we need to cleanse this misinformation, De-myth- debunk the myths, right? Yeah. Um, and once everyone knows what the big picture is, nurses are here to make people better. And I think they're the ones that are going to overhaul the system when they realize what patients' lives are like after and what can happen um, when we don't stick to these cultural practices. And I think in the wake and walking ICU, because they have that big perspective, because they expect patients to be able to walk out the door, because LTAC is a dirty word, tracheostomy hardly is in our vocabulary. Um, It's just innate. But also when patients are getting sicker, when they're going towards severe ARDS, we're even more desperate. Um, the paradigm is so different instead of, oh, they're too sick to walk. It's like, they're so sick. We better walk them because they might have to be paralyzed tomorrow or in a few days. So this is our last chance while they're oxygenating to keep the rest of their body strong until they're before they're out. And then once they can be off paralytics, we got to get them up. Otherwise they're not going to get off the ventilator. Um, Or they just got intubated. So we got to give them up because if we wait a day or two, it's going to take more people. It's going to be harder once they've atrophy to get them up. People have said, we can't mobilize our patients because we don't have the equipment. I'm like, uh, I don't know. It doesn't take much equipment when patients stay strong, when they can pop themselves out of bed for the most part. 
it's a lot easier. I mean, we don't do ECMO. So when you talk about 10 people walking down, like it being a parade down the hall, I believe it. But it's really not always that case, hardly ever that case, really, when patients can get themselves out of bed. When, you know, I, I think the, like you guys are saying, culture is such a big part of it, that familiarity really makes it seem more normal. But the part that you don't necessarily get from that, and you don't necessarily get at all if you don't kind of seek this, this information out, is the patient's perception. And that's, I think, a lot of people... It, like you, if you ask nurses, they'll say, listen, do what you want. But if I end up in this ICU intubated, you better knock me out because that's what they think they would want. And it's, it's not unless you actually, you know, research it. or as, you know, as you've done, you, you talk to these patients later and get their perceptions of things that you realize it's much worse when they're sedated because their reality of being delirious, that's the worst part of it. It's not lying in bed, being bored and a little uncomfortable. That's not a lot of fun, maybe. <laughs> but it's much worse when they think they're, you know, they're being tortured or something like that. But that's not apparent unless you kind of, you follow up on these kinds of things. And I, the first time I ever really started to grasp the magnitude of this, it was when I was on an airplane and I, the guy next to me asked what I did. And I told him I was an ICU nurse at the time. And his face just the color dropped and he got really emotional and he tried to tell me about his ICU stay and he didn't use the word delirium but he explained to me what it was like to have his limbs nailed to the ground in the middle of a forest and trees were falling on him and I could hear you know from my perspective I'm like well dude that didn't really happen that was just a bad dream but that's not what it was to him it was it was real so that kind of stress and fear and terror of not being able to run away from falling trees and seeing monsters come out of the sky it was so real to him. He said that for a year, every time he closed his eyes, those images would come back to him. So he couldn't sleep. He was just went into a psychotic spiral. And I was, my jaw just dropped. I'd never heard anything like it. I had worked in ICU for, I think, six years at the time. No one had ever talked to me about post-ICU PTSD. And so that spurred a lot of my own curiosity. And then um, going on survivor pages and listening to survivors talk about it, I just kept thinking, if the ICU world knew what this was like, there's no way they would just jump to sedation so quickly or say things like what you said, I would rather be sedated. Like clearly you don't know what it's like then. Um, So that's why I started the podcast. And I think episode four, I just have clip after clip after clip of survivors. And I just told them, leave a message on this number. Tell me what you experienced in your medically induced coma. I didn't say delirium, hallucinations. I used nothing to prompt what they told me, but all they would talk about were their hallucinations, and then how traumatized their life has been since. Well, I think this is inherently one of the problems with working in the ICU, particularly for nurses, um, is that we don't get a good full picture of what is happening with the patient, right? And and it's, it's both sides, right? I see and hear from nurses all the time who say, you know, oh, I would never want to have a transplant because all the transplants do so awfully. Uh, but they don't see the transplant patient in the clinic six months later when they're doing great. And in the same way, we don't see these patients six months after they come out of the ICU where they've been through this, right? We see them and they get, quote, better and they go to the floor and we kind of forget about them. So I know we have a lot of, um, Brandon and I have kind of been surprised by this, but we have a lot of ICU nurses who listen to the podcast regularly. So I'm just going to recommend to, if you're a nurse, especially anybody, but especially if you're a nurse, go check out um, Kaylee's podcast, listen to that episode. um, Because I think it would be very helpful to get that perspective from patients and what they went through um, during their ICU stay. Yeah. Changing your perspective from looking at the patient and saying, oh, they're resting comfortably. Right. To thinking, no, like they're, you know, having their arms and legs pulled off or, or whatever. Right. Not saying, oh, this is like a, uh, uh, you know, delirium, a confusion, like a fantasy they're having, which is, is true. But for them, that is what's happening. Right, exactly. So, you know, that's what you're putting them through right now. And the agitation isn't so much from the ventilator as it is from their psychotic world that they're in. Yeah, they're behaving appropriately for what they're perceiving. Uh, yeah. Yep. And I would also recommend starting the podcast from the very beginning. Um, we kind of go through the history of ventilators and how sedation ever started. Um, and then survivors kind of walk you through each, um, I guess, deficit that they can suffer after sedation and immobility. And then survivors that have walked their way through critical illness also tell their stories. 
All right, Kaylee. Well, thanks for doing this with us. Is there anything else you want to leave us with? No, I think I've talked a lot. Thanks for letting me ramble. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on. Yeah, we'll um we'll put a link to uh to our podcast in the notes here as well. I, I definitely think it's a really good resource if you want to um seek out some more material on this this topic, which you know, there there are practical things to, to be learned. You know, there's everything we've talked about is a skill set like anything else, but I think one of the messages here is that a big part of it is just having the right mindset of what you're trying to achieve here and why. Because the intuitive sense of what what you should do to help a sick patient get better is uh, not necessarily right. I mean, we we don't always know, you know, what makes patients better. And this is, I think, one of the times when it's not obvious. So just having kind of the right the right, right worldview about it is helpful. Perfectly said. Thank you. All right. That'll do for now. Um, and we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>